One day the devil was walking along with one of his demons. They saw a man ahead of them pick up something shiny. What did he find? Asked the devil's helper. A piece of the truth, Satan replied. Doesn't it bother you that he found a piece of the truth? Asked his cohort. No, said the devil. I will see that he takes that little piece of truth and makes a religion out of it. Now, obviously that's a made-up conversation. But we're going to find out in Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul went to the city of Athens, that's the exact result that he found all over the city. Idol after idol after idol representing all these different religious face and ideas. I've entitled this sermon, A Greek Salad of Ideas. That's a pretty good picture. It makes you want a Greek salad, doesn't it? And that is absolutely the environment that Athens was in the first century. Every philosophy, every religion, everything would come there. It was like the center of the world for new ideas. All right, we are going to pick it up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open those. It'll be on the screen as well. Acts 17, 16 down to 22. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, when we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul has got some time on his hands. He has to wait for his two co-workers, Silas and Timothy, to join him in the city of Athens. And Paul's not a lazy guy. He's not the kind of guy that's just going to sit at home and binge watch Netflix. That is just not the Apostle Paul. That is an awesome picture, is it not? Uh, now that's a binge watcher right there. Candace does a great job of the slides. If you've never thanked Candace for all the work she does in our office, you should do that. So the Apostle Paul, he's not lazy. He's not hanging out at home. He gets busy. He's checking out the city, and as he wanders around, he sees idol after idol after idol. Being raised a Jew, that is just appalling to him. And now that he is a follower of Christ, he knows there's only one we should be worshiping, only one we should be following. And so Paul does his usual pattern. He finds the local synagogue and he interacts with the Jewish people there. 
Now, in the past number of weeks over the sermons, we've seen that generally causes some kind of chaos or riots or whatever. Nothing much seems to happen at the synagogue in Athens. But pretty much right away, Paul shifts over to the marketplace. The very big public area would have been an open-air market where people come to buy and sell food and other things. And Paul knew that's where I can meet people. So he goes there, he's hanging out in the marketplace, and in no time at all, he finds himself talking to two philosophical groups, followers of Epicurus, the Epicureans, and the Stoic philosophers. Now remember, this is Athens, the center of the world for philosophers and debates. All right, so who are these groups? Well, the Epicureans. Who are these guys? Well, they're obviously followers of the Greek philosopher Epicurus. In a nutshell, what he believed, this guy was really into pleasure. And he's, he, his philosophy said, we all need to eat to survive, but if we're going to eat food, we should strive to eat the best food, the stuff that really makes our taste buds come alive. If we're going to drink wine, we shouldn't drink the stuff that's like $10 for a gallon. We should get the really good stuff. He kind of advocated moderation along with this. He said, you know, if, if chocolate-dipped strawberries are your thing, only eat five of them. Don't eat 5,000 of them. They'll make you sick, and you'll never want them again. He says, pleasure can be found in all kinds of things. And he applied his philosophy to everything from art to sex to physical training for athletes. And he was convinced there was no afterlife. The gods weren't real. They weren't legit. And they have no power over human life. So his basic idea was, Live it up, have a great time while you're here. Don't worry about the consequences. Now that term Epicurean has come down to us in 2022 is basically synonymous with food. Uh, there's a company here in Vancouver Island, Epicure, and you can buy their spice mix and some of their prepared stuff. They make good stuff. Uh, there was a long-running magazine called Epicure, and obviously, it was mostly about food, those kind of things. And there's another magazine called The Epicurean Life. And it really focused on sports cars, fancy clothes, uh, yachts, all kinds of stuff. And really what Epicurus was going after was the tranquil life. The Greek word ataraxia, as he called it. And he thought that was the goal of life. Seek these pleasures in life, and we need to overcome three base fears, he said. Fear of the gods, fear of the afterlife, and fear of death. So that's kind of one gang, the Epicureans. That's who wants to debate with Paul. Then there's the Stoic philosophers. And Stoics basically had four virtues they were shooting for. Wisdom, temperance, courage, and justice. These guys are kind of the remain calm and do everything in moderation gang. When we, still today, when someone is in the middle of a heated argument and they remain calm and the other person's freaking out and yelling and waving their arms, we look at that person and go, wow, they're really stoic. So that is still kind of come down, trickled down to us all these years later. 
And these guys thought that basically human beings could learn to control themselves. <coughs> they could become wise, temperate, just, and courageous by studying and self-discipline. Now, it's interesting, in the history of Christianity, different uh, notable Christian people like Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, they looked at Stoic philosophy and they thought, you know what, there, there's some good stuff there. I mean, we as followers of Jesus should try to become more wise, more temperate, more courageous, more just as we follow Jesus. But where Stoicism and Christianity hugely part is basically how you get there. So Stoicism says, be self-disciplined, study, work hard at it, and over a lifetime you will become like that. And then Christianity comes along and says, well, that's a nice theory, but it's just not true. Human nature, for all of history, shows that left to our own devices, we tend towards being selfish, proud, greedy, violent, and unjust. And we need more than just a self-improvement philosophy. We need a massive, radical overhaul. We need Jesus to show us how to live and then die on our behalf so we can be truly forgiven and free. And then Jesus needs to rise from the dead to conquer sin, death, and evil so that we can have hope for this life and the life to come. So that's the Stoics. So they are debating Paul, and they're interested. They're kind of hearing some of these new ideas, and it's very new, very different. They've never heard anything like Paul's saying before. And they, they kind of throw out this insult. In our English Bibles, they says they called Paul a babbler. Well, the Greek word is actually spermologos, and it means a seed picker. And the image was a bird, specifically the rook bird. And I guess this bird's very common in the Mediterranean, and it has this habit, kind of like chickens go around pecking seed off the ground, but these guys are really crazy. They're, they just jump all over the place. It doesn't seem to make any sense. They're just random. They're just picking up all these different seeds. And they, they said to Paul, basically, you're a seed picker. You're like a rook bird. And uh, the Greek-English lexicon of uh, the New Testament. This is about the most nerdy book I own. I looked it up. This is what it says. Insulting imagery of persons who lack sophistication and seem to pick up scraps of information from here and there. So they throw this insult out at Paul. They said, you're a seed picker. You're just grabbing all these random ideas. And what they intended as an insult is actually a compliment to the Apostle Paul. He, in fact, was a seed picker. He was constantly on the lookout for aspects of the culture that he found himself in that were touch points with the good news of the gospel. What things already in the culture related to Jesus? What things could he find in music, art, literature, poetry? What were the things that he could match up and use as an opening for a conversation? So the seeds Paul is picking up as he walks around the city are all these idols. And it's driving him crazy. It's just disgusting how many of these crazy idols there are. And then finally, Paul comes on the key. 
the key that unlocks a deep conversation with the philosophers of Athens. There is one empty pedestal. It doesn't have an idol on it. It just has a plaque and it says, to the unknown God. And Paul goes, bingo, that's it. That's the one I've been looking for. That's the key. That's my opening. Now, it's kind of unclear whether they invite Paul to speak at the Areopagus or they just kind of grab him and drag him there. But either way, he ends up at this Areopagus. Now, what was the Areopagus? It's this amazing rock formation in the middle of the city of Athens. And it just kind of pops out of the ground. And it's like a flat plateau on top. And it just pops up. There's trees and everything around. And they made stairs up the top. And this was the place where philosophers loved to gather. Drink iced coffee and just, I don't know about the iced coffee part, but they were probably drinking something. And, uh, and they would debate the latest religious ideas. All right, we're going to pick it up. What happens in verse 22? Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. See, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of this land. God did this so that perhaps they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, that's pretty amazing stuff going on in there, and we're going to unpack it. You see, Paul illustrates his argument by quoting two Greek poets. And the first line comes from a man named Epimenides, Epimenides the Cretan. So he's from the island of Crete. And this is the actual poem that Paul quotes. It says, They fashioned a tomb for thee. O holy and high one, the Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But thou art not dead, thou livest and abides forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. The other quotation comes from the fifth line of a poem called The Phenomena. And it was by a man named Eretus of Cilicia. Now Cilicia was the province in what we today think of as the country of Turkey, that's where Paul was born. So this is kind of the hometown guy. This would have been the famous name where Paul grew up. Now, classic Greek, Greek religion with its god and goddesses like Athena, Poseidon, Zeus, they didn't really think of them in terms of the way we think of Almighty God. They, di they didn't think of 
them as all-powerful or all-wise or even having good morals at all. They really thought of them as just kind of a jump above human beings. They were certainly more powerful, but they were extremely flawed. And they were always infighting, backstabbing, cheating, lying, all this kind of stuff. The Greek gods and goddesses were not moral examples in any way. Now, along comes this guy, Eratus, and he senses that really they haven't got the truth right. Especially about maybe the most powerful of their gods, Zeus. And so he says in his poem, let us begin with Zeus. And he says, let us not think of him as ruling the council of the gods, but as the supreme being of our philosophers. It was almost like he could sense the real truth about God. And he goes on to say, all ways are full of Zeus and all meeting places of men. The sea and the harbors are full of him in every direction. We all have to do with Zeus, and for we are also his offspring. And that line is the part that Paul quotes. And so you can imagine the Apostle Paul growing up in Cilicia, and this, he's heard this poem. This was a guy in his home province. And he, I, remember, I think what happened in Paul's mind is he went, you know, that guy's getting there. He's getting closer to the real truth about who God is. He's got completely the wrong name. He's calling him Zeus. He should be calling him Yahweh, the great I am, the maker of heaven and earth. And Paul essentially says to himself, you know what? Remember this. Someday this is going to come in handy. And today's the day in Acts chapter 17. So what is Paul doing by, by using these touch points for the good news of the gospel? Well, he is using things that are familiar to his audience. This is Greek culture. This is what they're proud of. This is their poets, their philosophers saying these things. Now, Paul could have started off and say, well, you know, I'm Jewish. I've been trained as a Jew. Uh, let me tell you about the Passover lamb. And that is the symbol of, that Jesus ultimately fulfilled. He is the ultimate sacrificial lamb uh, for all the sins of the people. And his audience would have gone, sorry, Passo, what? What are you talking about? You want pasta? What are you talking about, a lamb? Are you hungry? We're so confused. What are you talking about? So Paul didn't rely on all the Jewish things that he knew. He used something from the Greek culture that he was in. That whole approach is called contextualization, finding points of culture that correspond with the gospel, that give you openings to talk about the real truth of who Jesus is. Now, here's the interesting part of our church culture 2,000 years later. When we send out missionaries to other countries, we not only applaud them for being contextual, we actually demand it. We think that's the norm. We just approved an amazing young couple. Uh, we started supporting them in January, Andrew and Tanya Rokeby. Amazing young couple. They are heading to Japan at the end of this year. They've been raising their funds. I'm just, I love these two. They're amazing. Now, our expectation 
is that they go to Japan and they embrace Japanese culture. They learn about it, they soak it up, and they find touch points with the gospel. That's our expectation. Now, the weird and interesting thing that we've done in North American churches is we're totally cool with missionaries doing that. But when it comes to our own culture, we start saying stuff like, we can't talk about our own culture. That's way too worldly. That's way too sinful. We shouldn't be doing that. And essentially, people begin to think using touch points in our secular culture means that we endorse all of that secular culture. And that is simply not true. It didn't for the Apostle Paul, and it doesn't for us either. I came across an amazing video clip on Twitter, and uh, it's from the late show with Stephen Colbert. And uh, he usually does all the interviewing on his show, but in this particular clip, he's interviewing this pop star, and she says, can I be the interviewer? And she asked him a question. Now, in order for this clip to make sense, you need to uh, understand Stephen Colbert is a Christian. He uh, attends a Roman Catholic church, and he's very vocal about his faith at the same time as being host of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And the young woman in the clip is an English pop star. Her name is Dua Lipa, and that's actually her real name. Uh, Her parents came from Kosovo, emigrated to England. And uh, her family kind of has a Muslim background. I'm not sure about her specific faith, but Muslim would de- Islam would definitely be the one she has been exposed to. All right, got the contacts, two people. We're going to turn down the lights and watch as Stephen Colbert does an amazing job of contextualization. So I think something that your uh, viewers really connect with in your comedy and your hosting skills, yeah. especially in the like past few years, is how open and honest and authentic you are about the role your faith plays in your life. Oh, and I was wondering, is there any, you know, does your faith and your comedy ever overlap? <laughs> and does one ever win out? I think ultimately, us all being mortal, the faith will win out at the end. (laughs) But I certainly hope when I get to heaven, Jesus has a sense of humor. But I will say this, I will say this. Uh, Someone was asking me earlier about what I, this this relates to faith, because my faith is involved with, I'm I'm a Christian and a Catholic, and that's always connected to the idea of um, love and sacrifice being somehow related and giving yourself to other people, and that death is not defeat, if you, if you can see where I'm getting at there. Someone was asking me earlier, what movie did I really enjoy this year? And I said, well, I really like Belfast, which is Kenneth Branagh's story of his childhood. And one of the reasons I love it is that I'm Irish, and uh, Irish-American, and it's such an Irish movie, um, and I think this is also a Catholic thing, because it's, it's funny, and it's sad, and it's funny about being sad. In the same way, that sadness is like a little bit of an emotional death, but not a defeat if you can find a way to laugh about it. Because that laughter keeps you from having fear of it. 
and fear is the thing that keeps you from turning to evil devices to save you from the sadness. As Robert Hayden said, we must not be frightened or cajoled into accepting evil as our deliverance from evil. We must keep struggling to maintain our humanity, though monsters of abstraction threaten and police us. So if there's some relationship between my faith and my comedy, it's that no matter what happens, you are never defeated. You must understand and see this in the light of eternity and find some way to love and laugh with each other. Wow. Stephen Colbert, everybody. What a well-thought-out, gracious, amazing answer. Off the top of his head. That's pretty incredible. I love how he mentions Jesus. He alludes to his sacrificial death on the cross, and he uses things. He quotes a poet. He, he cites a movie. The audience claps. She seems amazed. It's not perfect, but it's pretty darn good for a late-night talk show host. Now, I would love to stand up here and tell you I'm just like Steve. I am amazing at that. Actually, I'm not. Like, in the, in the moment, I kind of stumble around. When I think back over my life, you know when my best moments were? When I was operating in total ignorance. When I had no clue who my audience was. I had an experience in my 20s. I was a youth pastor at a church in Victoria, and uh, one of the girls in our college group invited a bunch of us over, so five or six of us go to her house, and uh, this girl, Alicia, was amazing. She was a lovely young lady, had vibrant faith, and I just kind of assumed her parents were Christians as well. And so uh, when we get there, we're kind of hanging out in the living room, and her parents come in, and she's like, oh, mom and dad, you've never met Darren. I wanted to introduce you to Darren. He's the youth pastor at the church I'm going to. I'm part of the college group. And they're like, oh, hi, Darren. And uh, the dad, he kind of looks at me. He goes, so Darren, how, how did you ever get to be a pastor? What's the story there? I'm like, oh, well, thanks for asking. And I talked to him about how God kind of got a hold of my life in high school. And then I said, I, I backpacked over to Europe for three months, had some incredible experiences. And probably the most dramatic was was when we took a train from Budapest, Hungary to Athens, Greece through Yugoslavia like two months before the whole thing erupted in civil war and broke up into five countries. And, and there was a Romanian guy who, who came to us on the train and, and he was trying to escape communist Romania, wanted us to hide, us, hide him under his seat. And, and God brought the verse, John 15, 13, to my mind, you know, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down one's life for his friends. And I'm just kind of saying all this, like, yeah, God really touched my heart. And, and so we did this crazy thing, and we smuggled this guy across the border. And I said, you know, those kind of experiences really cemented my Christian faith. And, and as God made his calling more and more plain in my life, you know, I, I finally realized I'd be like Jonah. I, I, just, I could try to run away, but God would just smack me and put me back where I'm supposed to. So I might as well just surrender. And his parents are kind of like, Wow. And they said, well, nice to meet you, Darren. Um, Alicia, we're, we're going to go upstairs and, and watch that movie we rented. Remember the day when people used to rent movies? Anyways, uh, we're going to go watch that movie we rented. Alicia, don't forget to put the cat out when uh, everyone leaves. Nice to meet you all. Good night. And the parents go upstairs. And the whole group of all the friends look at me and go, Darren, that was amazing. I'm like, what? What was amazing? Like, I'm totally clued out. And they're like, well, you know that, like, her dad is, like, a committed atheist, right? I was like, no, I totally didn't know. I kind of thought they were all believers. Like, oh, totally 
And they're like, Darren, it was so great. Like, you were just talking about things he understood. Like, you were just passionate. You were just real. Oh, that was amazing. And I was kind of laughing at myself, and I was thinking about it the next day, and I thought, okay, if I had known, would it have changed the way I said it? And I was like, maybe, sadly enough, it might have changed. Maybe I would have been more apprehensive. And the crazy thing is, the Apostle Paul gives such, such a great example. Finding touch points, doing this idea of contextualization, relating to the culture you're in, shouldn't make us stumble around, should make us more bold. Being contextual doesn't mean not being bold. It just means declaring your faith in a thoughtful, grace-filled way that touches on things that people can understand. So here's what I think the challenge of Acts chapter 17 is for us this morning. I think it's for us to not back away, not refuse to talk about our faith, and not to get scared about what people think, but rather be bold in the contextualization of our faith. Now you may say, okay, Darren, that sounds like a really great concept. How do I specifically do that? Well, there's so many different things in our modern culture that I think you can use. I think movies are a great one. There are so many scenes in movies. Stephen Colbert quoted one. Uh, there are so many scenes in movies that relates to faith. People watch movies, that's an easy conversation. I think things in novels. I think if you love to read, you know, a guy like John Grisham, all his legal thrillers, I looked it up, 300 million copies that dude has sold of his books. One of them is called The Testament, and it's a pretty hilarious plot. Uh, there is this absolutely stellar character who is a missionary in South America, and she's working on the Amazon jungle with this remote tribe and just serving the Lord. And the way he describes her is just so honest, so authentic, so real. You just love this missionary as she works away. And then it zips back to New York, and there's this crazy billionaire who is dying. He's got terminal cancer. The doctors have told him he's mere weeks from death. And he cannot stand his family. His four ex-wives and all of their kids are just nasty. They're horrible people. And so at the very last second, he calls in his lawyer secretly, smuggles them through the back door, and changes his will. And all these people are so excited they're going to inherit billions. And he rooked them at the last second and he gives it all to the missionary, who's his great, great niece. Met her once and she's living in the Amazon jungle. So this lawyer has to go to the Amazon and give her the billions and it's this crazy story. That is a phenomenal book. If you have a friend who's a reader, give them a copy. You buy a copy, read it, talk about your faith. Easy, easy, easy conversation. Maybe books and movies aren't your thing, but you love music. Some of you love uh, classical music. And you think about the history of, of composers, and there's so many amazing Christian composers down through history. Bach and Handel and Tchaikovsky. What an easy thing to invite a friend to a concert and do a little bit of research. Why did Tchaikovsky write what he wrote? What was he, what was he conveying about his faith? Maybe, maybe plays are more your thing. When I was a student in Vancouver doing my grad studies, 
uh, they hyped up this play called Espresso, which was being performed in Vancouver. And uh, so I went with a couple other students. Incredible play, written by this Italian Christian lady, Lucia Frangioni. Uh, just warning you, if you ever see it, it's totally full of crazy Italian people swearing constantly. But the truth of the gospel comes through in such a beautiful, powerful way. Maybe none of that appeals to you. Maybe you're more a sports person. You know, a guy like Steph Curry, I was watching the All-Star game a couple weeks ago, and the commentators are like, he is the greatest shooter in the entire history of the NBA. Nobody has ever been so consistent and put up so many points with their shot as Steph Curry. That dude is very vocal about his Christian faith. He's just very honest and open and real about it. You know, maybe for some of our uh, high school and junior high students watching TikTok, uh, Instagram, there are posts on there that you can share on your story. I would encourage students to do that. I read a, an amazing story this week about a pastor. His name is Matt Souza. And this guy got all his theological training. And at the same time, he loved video games. Uh, if you don't know the term gamer, it means somebody who's playing hardcore video games a lot of their life. And so this guy, Matt Souza, was a gamer. He was a pastor. And there's this thing I don't even know about. It was called Twitch.tv. And gamers will live stream themselves playing games. And then other people are playing the games, and they're talking and conversing and watching each other play. And he started doing this and started connecting with gamers all over the world. He had so many faith-filled conversations, he had to start an online church back in 2015 before a lot of churches even thought of online. This dude has seen people come to faith all over the world. You know, I think about our modern Canadian society. We've become truly a post-Christian country. And even the vague awareness or memory of Christian teaching is disappearing from our culture. We've almost looped right back to the Apostle Paul in Athens 2,000 years ago. You know, his, the people that heard Paul responded in verse 19 and 20. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. They said, may we know what this new teaching is you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we would like to know what they mean. You know, our culture has become so secular that a beautiful, a friendly, a warm expression of your Christian faith will almost sound completely brand new. Crazy, crazy stuff. All right, we're going to see how it all ends, picking it up in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. 
And out of those converts became the church that was planted in Athens. My third and final point is simply entitled, A Stellar Example to Follow. You know, the Apostle Paul is famous in all of his writings and all the rest of the books of the New Testament that he wrote, where he builds an argument and he would say, because this is true and this is true and this is true, therefore we should do this. And that's Paul's kind of favorite word. And this whole passage kind of hangs on verse 29 when it says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human hands. Essentially, Paul's saying, okay, Athens, you are the capital city of idols. You're the capital city of crazy religious ideas, all this kind of stuff. And you seem to think that all these gods are just a little bit above you as human beings. Let me set the record straight on what the one true God is actually really like. He is not an idol. He is all-powerful. He is perfect in his moral being. And because of all that, he commands people. He doesn't even just politely suggest. He says he calls all people everywhere to repent, to stop, turn around, do a 180 in their thinking, their beliefs, and their practice. And the proof of what I'm saying is that he raised Jesus, the one appointed to judge the world, Jesus died and was resurrected from the dead. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus actually was who he said he was. And I love the results. It's so real and true. You got the, the scoffers, the skeptics. They kind of sneer at Paul and reject what he has to say. And then you have the ones who are kind of, wow. They're, they're thinking, they're processing. They're like, I want to hear more. They're, they're kind of halfway there. And then you have the people who respond in faith. Dionysius, this woman named Damaris, and a bunch of others. And they go on to form that early first church. Now, you can go to Athens today and see the Areopagus. There it is. This crazy, rocky outcropping. You can walk up on top. You can see where it all happened. This was a real event, church, happening in a real place. You can go touch it and see it for yourself and in fact the city of Athens has put up a huge metal plaque on the side of the Areopagus in Greek this passage from Acts 17 they put Paul's sermon bolted to the rock and you know I think that reminds us that the Holy Spirit of God the person of Jesus Christ and all of his power and wisdom and glory is doing exactly what he did 2,000 years ago with those philosophers. He is calling people from a world of crazy ideas, weird religious bents and all these things, and he is helping them find himself. You know, for someone who's completely obsessed with pleasure like the Epicureans, Jesus comes along and says, you aren't wrong that pleasures are good. You know, in fact, God the Father has blessed this world with beauty, warmth of the sun, amazing food, travel, sexuality, exciting experiences. But here's where you guys are off track. It's not ends in themselves. The pleasure isn't the goal. Rather, pleasure are arrows pointing to God himself. 
the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the true source of all pleasure. Come follow me and experience true and lasting pleasure in the presence of God. For the Stoic, Jesus comes along and says, you aren't wrong about your four virtues. I want my followers too to be people of wisdom, temperance, justice, and courage. But here's the beautiful truth. You can't perfectly maintain those virtues over a lifetime on your own strength. As human beings, you will fall short. You will fail in those attempts. But he said, the difference of following me is I take up residence inside you. The Holy Spirit of God mediates my presence. We live inside you. We give you the power over a lifetime to grow in those four virtues. Wisdom, temperance, justice, and courage. You know, ultimately, Jesus is the end of all religion and all philosophy. He is what we find at the very end of the road. And as his followers, that frees us up. We don't have to bash and insult and tear down what other people think or believe. We need to be like the Apostle Paul and be seed pickers. Find the points of contact. Show people how their deepest longings and desires are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Amazing verse in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen? Glory come.